0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of Filmmakey.com, and every week we bring you an interview with a film professional to discuss the craft of filmmaking. And of course, this week's no different. I'm going to be interviewing Mark Wiltshire. We're going to be discussing Wu-Tang, an American saga, and how Mark tackled the editing of this saga. Now, if you like this interview, make sure to check out FilmmakerU.com's courses, where we bring in the industry best to discuss their craft. You can get 10% off using the promo code THECUTTINGROOM, all one word, THECUTTINGROOM. That's 10% off with THECUTTINGROOM at FilmmakerU.com. Now, with all that said, let's hear what Mark has to say about Wu-Tang, an American saga. I guess my first question for you is,
1: is Wu-Tang for the children? Yes, it literally, <laughs> literally is. In fact, as you can see in my background, my daughter has already been indoctrinated into my love of Wu-Tang.
0: Now, how did you get involved with uh, the the series Wu-Tang?
1: So I was very lucky to have known an editor who worked on season two. And um, unfortunately for her, she wasn't able to come back for for season three. And, uh, you know, I just happened to mention my my love and passion for it when I reached out to her one day. And, uh, she, she wrote right back and said, send me your resume. I'm going to send it over They're They're looking for somebody. And I was so excited. And I happened to be wearing a Wu-Tang t-shirt that day, totally coincidental. So I took a selfie of myself, sent it over to her and said like, this is amazing timing. Thank you so much for, for sending the resume. She responds, I just sent this selfie to the showrunner as well. So now he knows you're a fan and now, you know, uh, you you know, it's, it's made a good introduction. So uh, it started from there. And then um, luckily they they did call me and and I met with the showrunner and I just felt like we were very much on the same page about what the show is and how they like to work and how I can contribute, what I can bring to the table and being a massive fan, not just of the group, but like, I love the show. I was watching the show. Uh, as a fan of Wu-Tang, and, uh, and I thought it was a really well-made show. So I always felt like if I could be that lucky to work on something like this, I know I'm going to bring my A-game to it. And uh, I think I was able to express that in our meeting. And so uh, it it just went from there. Yeah.
0: Now, you worked with uh, RZA in... Yeah he wrote and directed an episode what was that working experience like
1: yeah it was surreal uh i mean the episode that we did liquid swords was more focused on his cousin uh jizza um but you know every single member of the group is represented in this film that he wrote and directed and you know these these guys are all still alive and actually are consulting producers on the show so it was a little bit intimidating Knowing that you know my choices are going to be reflecting who these guys are, and mm-hmm. I better make sure I represent them accurately or at least uh, respectfully. Um, I mean, if, because it's a fantasy film, there was obviously a lot of leeway. Uh, we're not we're not trying to tell the real story in that particular episode, mm-hmm. um, but you know, yeah, I'm working with Riza. He wrote this. It's a passion project. Uh, You know, it was very clear on the page when I read it that this was something very passionate and personal for him, because it's an allegorical film, he's able to put a lot of his uh, love of hip hop, his love of uh, pop culture and cinema. And so, you know, beyond just telling the story of Wu-Tang, this is really telling the story of Bobby Diggs and his, Mm. you know, childhood obsessions. And so representing all of that uh, faithfully and and respectfully to the way he had envisioned was definitely like a big concern uh, going into it. But at the same time, he's such a great writer and director that even upon reading the script, I got it pretty quickly, like what the references are, what he wants to be doing, the point of view that he's coming at, and and even right down to the, the visual reference I could see on the page, oh, That reminds me of this movie or that scene or this shot. And so it gave me already some context going in of how to approach it. Um, But, you know, our our uh, our exchanges were quite brief and um, valuable when we had them, because while I mean, so he was directing while, you know, getting footage and he's on set every day. And as soon as we wrapped our episode, he was still on tour. So you know, so if he's in the tour bus. He might not have Wi-Fi. You know, he might not be able to get on a phone call and walk through some stuff. Uh, so you know, we'd have very brief phone calls that would get very specific about whatever challenges we're facing, whatever concerns or questions I might have about a given scene or how to approach it. And uh, you know, the way he speaks is almost in codes. So you you have to really get to learn his language and get to understand. What he's going for, because he's so artistic when he speaks, it's not uh, just a clear check boxes. Okay, do this, that's this. It's a little bit of understanding the emotional state that we're coming in, or the you know the the particular like through line of this character and where they're at in this point of the story, and that's sort of the context I'm working off of in order to make choices. So it was a lot, you know, left on my own devices to make guesses and choices that I felt were you know right for the story we're telling and what he would want and fortunately uh I would say I was about 90% on the mark where does the truth change
0: into fiction in this series like is there hmm. an element like did they stick right to reality or were there things that they were given sort of you know allowed to alter or change
1: it's a great question uh on the one hand they they made a, a a point to be very true to life, right down to you know, the music. We couldn't put a needle drop in a scene if that needle drop had not come out yet at this point in time. So this the series, you know, crosses multiple years. But if I know that the episode I'm doing right now, they're episode five, for instance, they're getting off of the tour bus they have a day to kind of, you know, do their thing. And that's where we get to see these three different storylines of a day in the life of U-God and Mastakila and Inspector Deck. Well, whenever they're walking into a barbershop or they're, they're hanging out at, at the house, or they're in a taxi cab, you know, wherever they might be, if there's music playing, we had to make sure that I know, like, to the month, okay, wh- when are we in this mm-hmm. story? and therefore any music that I wanted to throw in there had to be era specific uh but also as far as like specific details to each character's story my understanding because I you know I read the books uh that Riza wrote and, and I was quite familiar with each person and I feel like a lot of the details were very much there like the the truth of right down to even like what wardrobe they might've worn. You look at pictures from the time and you can see that they're wearing the exact same shirt mm-hmm. that they're wearing in that scene and that this and that. Um, so they did do a tremendous amount of work to keep things very specific and truthful. Um, and I think, so a lot of the storylines are, are very similar. I mean, if there was any, uh, Creative license that would have been done. It's very minimal, and it's really just for for any structural narrative purpose. But uh, w- it was very clear in the editing room when I would work with Alex C, the showrunner, that you know, some some you know moment he would might maybe look back and be like, oh, you know, I don't know if we want to do that because I'm not sure they're gonna the real person is gonna like that. Mm-hmm. And so occasionally they would rewrite in the room to adjust some of that. It wasn't that it was even false, but more like, oh, you know what? This may not bode well for them or they may not want to see themselves in that way. And so we were very, very sensitive to the representation of these real people throughout. Now, the you fantasy learn- film was a little different because that yeah. was just like
0: crazy. Well, tell me about editing the fantasy film.
1: So uh, that was truly the, the greatest joy I've ever had editing anything because there was so much... Freedom as far as uh, the style, the 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 behavior of the characters was not like it's Inspector Deck. No, he's playing a character, you know. So there was a lot of really wild performances and fun stuff that just the actors brought to the table that I was able to sort of pull a little little gesture, you know, sniffing whatever's on the ground. Uh, Inspector Deck's walking by with his long fingernail, and then just. That was just the thing he did. And I was like, that's so weird. But like fascinating. Like, wh- what is this post-apocalyptic world? And what are the what's the residue that he's snorting? But I don't care. Like this is just such an interesting thing. Um, so th- there I think it gave the actors a lot of freedom to play around with their characters and the story. But what was the most fun for me personally was the fact that pretty much every scene in Liquid Swords, the episode we did is a an homage to some movie, you know, and so and most of the movies, if not all at this point, I'm a fan of, you know, if I didn't know it before, I definitely did my research and was like, this is awesome, you know, so just like pulling a little reference from, from Star Wars or from uh, Shogun Assassin, which is, you know, if fans of the album know that was sort of the main sample from the movie that Shogun Assassin they would put throughout the album of Liquid Swords. And so any chance we could do to like throw something in there, that was really fun, a fun exercise of taking a sound bite and throwing it in. The beauty of working with RZA is that that's how he thinks. So he's not like, you have to do exactly how I wrote this script and this is all the ideas are there on the page. No, he wants you to bring as much of these ideas that you have to the table and so there was no rules. I could literally just throw anything and experiment with something, you know, whether it be a sound effect from a movie or just like full on taking dialogue from a movie and inserting it. And uh, he was open to anything. Uh, it was very collaborative in that way, um, really gave us free reign to try things. And he would just tell us if he liked it or didn't. Um, but he usually seemed to get it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was it was that was the fun part. It was breaking down the script and trying to see, okay, like this is a Star Wars reference. You know, what can I do to kind of tip the hat to that? There's a lot of Star Wars fans that are going to appreciate any little thing that we can throw in there. Uh, one instance uh, is I I found a window to squeeze in the Wilhelm scream, and mm. uh, I was really happy about that because I've you know it's it's seldom you get an opportunity to actually do it uh, authentically without being sort of ironic or silly Uh, and I really felt like no it fits it actually like belongs here Uh, but you know in our sound mix uh, our sound designer was like really pushing to lose it he was like it's so cheesy it's overused but I made my case I said no but look like there's so many Star Wars references here this scene is particularly going to be like a good one to use it and uh, you know there was this long silence and Riza just chimed in says let's keep it And I was very happy about that. That was really a great moment to be able to see, you know, some of my contributions being in there. But um, yeah, I mean, just right down to like even little sound effects or or I added an ADR line at the beginning that was a tip of the hat to Princess Leia at at the start of New Hope. So just a lot of little things that I was able to do that you wouldn't normally be able to do in a regular episode of TV, even this show. I mean, this show was what attracted me as a fan was... Beyond the fantasy episodes, every episode has a little bit of a fantastical element or, you know, an opportunity to experiment or or break away from any TV norms. Uh, So even in the pilot, there's this animation sequence that's reminiscent of Fritz the Cat. And it was like, whoa, like, that's cool. You don't usually see that in a TV show. And so there was always a little bit of those opportunities in every episode. But the fantasy episode was kind of just like, Falls to the wall whatever you want to do that can you know incorporate some sense of uh fun and, and enhance and elevate that fantasy that was the objective so it was very very exciting
0: which was your favorite reference to play with in that episode
1: um i mean star wars was definitely a big one because i don't know i just like star wars and i thought that that would be a good one to uh to to throw stuff in but The Shogun Assassin was one that I really worked a lot because I'm Liquid Swords is my favorite solo album of all the Wu solo albums. And I discovered that movie through listening to that album. I didn't even know what it was. And then, you know, the opening of the album is just straight dialogue pulled from it. And so watching the movie, you know, I really got a sense of, you know, there's a lot of this that is in his script, but it's very subtle. And so uh, there was one moment where we were able to throw in the the dialogue just a little snippet of of dialogue uh to tie in to the album but also to kind of tie that loop of uh, all the references that maybe you would have missed you know this was one like little thing that I, we were able to squeeze in that I was very happy to to put in a Shogun Assassin uh piece in there um but you know also the Mad Max reference uh when the, these these women come in with their four by fours and it's just a wild sequence that goes into a dungeon. It's very reminiscent of uh, uh, Mad Max Three, Thunderdome. Um, just that was so much fun to play with and milk as much as we could. The studio wanted us to keep trimming that scene down, and eventually, RZA was just like, "No, no, like they're missing the point. We got to, we got to bring it back and stretch it back out a bit." And that was that was very rewarding because I just loved that whole stretch.
0: Well, and how did the the studio react or the broadcaster react to that? If like, because they're like tightening up, it up, and you come back, and you're like, here it is, longer.
1: Yeah, no. Luckily for us, they were incredibly supportive and very smart. You know, uh, P- there's a cliche in Hollywood where network notes are always really dumb, and I mean, I've I've read Twitter accounts that that show these, and I get it. Like, it's it can be true, but that was so not the case on on this project um the the studio executives and the network executives with fox and um and hulu i mean just their ideas were so perfect like so spot on to help us really get there and shape the the show but you know of course there are moments where like for them they're looking at a runtime and they're like i don't know if people want to sit through this much time whereas for us, uh, Riza and I, in particular, I f- we felt very strongly about certain scenes that just didn't work if we were neutering them down to just sort of a, such a short runtime. And um, you know, it was a, it was a balancing act. Of course, we want to honor their note and and give it a shot, and we did that several times. Where you know that was one instance, the Mad Max uh, kind of that whole run, couple of scenes. But um, one particular scene that was very close to Riza. Was um, it's in a throne room, and it's it's Raekwon's character play playing a character called um uh King King Louis, and uh it, it's it's basically like a long uh, Shakespearean monologue mm-hmm. when you look at it, and um understandably they they looked at the runtime of just that scene alone, and they said, is there any way you can kind of bring this down? And and we got it. I think it was, you know, it probably runs about five and a half minutes or something, that scene. Um, but so we did it. You know, we we tried a couple of iterations of, you know, trimming it down and still keeping its essence, but losing a line here and there. And ultimately, it just didn't feel right. It, it actually lost the impact that the longer version had. And ultimately, we we watched it hundreds of times and we never felt bored or felt like it wasn't, engaging us and but we kind of over time over cutting it down I felt myself losing a little bit of interest or focus in the the rhythm of the scene it felt kind of just like it was zooming by not allowing us to process the words that he was saying and it's a very personal monologue and so Mm -hmm. yeah like ultimately that was one instance where we just had to say we tried it and we strongly believe that it works better longer and they 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 trusted that instinct they let us you know keep it the version of that scene that we felt was was best uh we made other concessions and we certainly reworked a lot of like micro moments that really you know maybe weren't landing and that was very helpful actually that they could tell us in that Mad Max sequence they're talking to these women and the fact that the guys get drugged just wasn't quite clear that that particular detail they weren't they felt like oh it's it's sort of we don't see it happening we just cut to the next scene and we see it and so that was one of the most laborious scenes we had to rework just to address that studio note because if they're telling us that they're missing something or that they're mm-hmm. zooming by too quickly most likely the audience is going to miss it if they're seeing it just one time and so that was actually one one particular spot that we we felt okay you know that's that's a fair note to give and and, you know, I think the final version is the best version of that. I was very proud of it. Actually, when I got it, I was like, oh, that is better. You know, that that is actually working a lot better. So, so it's a balancing act.
0: Now, you got to work. So you're, you're a Wu-Tang fan. You got to work mm-hmm. on the bio series. Yeah. And you got to work with Risa. Is there something you learned from this experience
1: about Wu-Tang that you didn't know that you're like, that's amazing? Oh, gosh. It's so hard to think about that in retrospect but the one thing that I learned um in episode five that was really insightful was I knew about you guys story but his son because that was uh you know he's he's written a book he's talked about that a lot um so I was familiar with that story but little things about like Master Killer's story I didn't know anything about that so he was almost gonna be a cab driver like as a career and and I didn't even realize like how he almost wasn't part of Wu Tang. Like it just sort of happened. Very uh, luckily, you could say. Gotcha. And uh, and that's that's addressed in season two a little bit, but in season three, in this episode in particular, it was a great way to see that sliding doors moment for mm-hmm. him. That I wasn't I wasn't aware of that at all. And and through that doing that episode and learning about his story, Master has genuinely become one of my favorite members. Like I just think he's. He, what he brings to the table is so unique, like all of them are, but the fact that he almost wasn't part of the group at all fascinates me. So, you know, he his uncle was a cabbie and was looking to retire. And another thing about Mastakilla I had no idea about was that he had a very famous uncle called Marvin Gaye, who is, you know, a singer talented musician a lot of his cousins and and other relatives were musicians and but in his family he was not known as having that gift uh people would sort of you know his family would sort of laugh at him as a kid trying to be singing and dancing they're like that's not your your talent you know that's not the thing you've got go drive a cab (laughs) yeah go drive a cab have a steady career you can make a good living you know it's a good honest living and uh, but you know of course at that time there was no rap that wasn't yeah. uh, a skill that was even you you didn't think you could have that and the, even while he's on tour so he did one song for that ended up on Thirty Six Chambers and then he's on tour with these guys but he has one song like literally one verse in the entire pantheon of what the group has done this far so you know there's a little bit of jealousy from the other members that he's making equal amount of money that he's not really part of the group or is he in that kind of attitude and so he really almost considered like just giving up and and just pursuing a cab career and you know it was his uncle who gave him you know found out I was like wait you've already got a song on this like no you have to pursue this you have to do it and so he, he luckily for all of us did and like I said he's like he's one of the best he's he's truly like what he brings to the to the you know the future and and Wu-Tang Forever and all the side projects it's like how would we not have that person Um, so that was a fascinating element of uh, you know I I feel like I'm always learning things about the group but that was probably my favorite lesson
0: now I have one last question for you what would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or TV show to watch
1: man it's such a great question I watch as much as I can Um, it might be because I have a daughter and I don't know if this is a guilty pleasure but Centaur World is like I haven't seen that my daughter it's, watches it, Bluey right now. Bluey is fantastic. Yeah. And and I, I don't even know if you'd call it a guilty pleasure because it's so good. Yeah, But Centaur World is just like an amazing animation that has came across me recently because of her that I'm like, I'm looking over her shoulder on the iPad. I'm like, I want to watch this. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm starting to get into it. And it's really, really fantastic and fun. But I mean, yeah, like th- that's really what comes to mind most recently. Uh, I'm very excited to have Party Down back. There's so much great TV. Uh, I just started watching Beef, which is just a lot of fun. I heard that's good. I mean, yeah, th- everything is so great right now. I don't even know if, if I would call them guilty pleasures. Yeah. Uh, but every time I, I rewatch Point Break, that feels like a good guilty pleasure. So that's... That's been my... Not
0: the remake, the original. No, no, the OG. I love that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. So
0: that was my interview with Mark. I'd like to thank him for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Evan Winch for cutting this episode and Jason Bankey for producing this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.